And welcome back to How It's Med, specifically the series Med Tech Talks, where we chat with people who are shaping the future of medical innovation and healthcare. Today, we have with us Michael Ferguson. My name is Jeff. My co-host is Sabdo. And the questions that we usually start with usually aim to probe a little bit into the stories of our guests. So, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about how you got, I guess, to Vancouver overall? Um, and, and then a little bit of what, how that led you to Ayoga. We'll start from there. I'm happy to do that. Then thanks. Uh, big question. Yeah, yeah, it is a big question, actually. And, and thanks for having me. Um, well, I was um, I was born in Jamaica just by sort of accident of history. My um, my mom was uh, living there and um, uh, working with uh, a teacher's training college and um, met my met my father there. Um, I moved back here to Vancouver with her in the late 70s, um, just in time for the Whitecaps to uh, win the soccer ball, which was a pretty big deal for me uh, when I was a kid. Uh, I didn't understand that hockey thing at all, but uh, but I got uh, but I got the round ball you kick with your foot. Um, I eventually learned that how important hockey is and, uh, you know, and developed a deep love for all things Canucks. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. very important to note. And well, I think. You know, my story you know, from my adulthood forward is kind of uh, a bit of an eclectic one. So I, I guess what they used to call a self-made man, I suppose. I, I, I left high school early and in my late teens and, um, you know, 15, I think, when I dropped out of high school and, you know, tra- traveled the world, went back to Jamaica to live on a Rastafarian commune for, uh, for a year when I was 16, tried to escape Expo 86 mostly. And when I came back, I spent a few years working as a musician or trying to work as a musician. I met my, uh, my wife on Earth Day, 1990 in the Prince George bus station. We got married a few years later. Um, around that time, I decided that probably music, while it was a lot of fun, was not the most stable career for a young man thinking of starting a family. Just, you know, again, just pure luck happened to, you know, I had a lot of ideas about what I wanted to do. You know, my sort of dream was to build digitally controlled analog synthesizers as a kind of installation art in home studios. And um, I taught myself programming, machine control systems, um, electronics on this newfangled internet thing. And the web wasn't even really the dominant mode that I used Gopher to, you know, to go to, you know, university web, university sites, Gopher sites. And uh, the web was just starting. I mean, I remember printing, printing out a list of every single website in the world. It was like a 15 pages long or something in, uh, I guess it would have been 1992 or something like 1991. Well, you know, I did a lot of interesting things, taught myself a bunch of stuff, but it turns out the most valuable thing of all was that I did it all on the internet and people were just starting to get a sense that the internet was going to be important. You know, that my career just kind of proceeded from there. Really. I, I, um, one of my earliest jobs in technology was converting old dial up style bulletin board systems to web-based discussion forums. And, um, I got a reputation as somebody who knew how, knew how to program the internet. So I built my career on that basis. That's fascinating. So basically you, you, you have, I guess, as you said, an eclectic background, mm-hmm. um, and you molded it into something that eventually, uh, focused on the internet overall. Mm-hmm. So what pushed you into the venture space. I guess that's the first step towards the health tech space, but the venture space first. Yeah. Yeah. So I brought you up to about, I guess, 1996 or 1997. And Apple was a good point. <laughs> well, those were crazy, crazy, heady times. 
Um, you know, the first dot com go around and everything was going nuts. And I ended up at a company called SoftQuad, which was, um, you know, one of the founding members of the World Wide Web Consortium and full of a bunch of very, very smart people. Uh, Bruce Sharp, who was the CTO there, whose uh, PhD is in mathematical physics, liked to recruit people who also had advanced degrees in absurdly difficult fields like that. And I just, you know, I really had no business being there, you know, a high school dropout as I was. And, uh, but Bruce really gave me a chance to make my own way. And he, he said, look, you're a smart guy, you know, the internet and using the internet and programming for it in a way that us ivory tower people have less experience with just walk around and go to meetings and see what you can do. I ended up as a product manager there for, um, hot metal pro, and then later for their XML tools, XML, uh, product suite. And, um, went to a lot of uh, committee meetings because one thing about getting your PhD is you learn to hate committee meetings and apparently, <laughs> and so I ended up going to a lot of W3C committee meetings and learning a lot about what people were not doing very well with the web at the time, which was making it so that ordinary people could use it. That really just inspired me to start my first company, which was, you know, developing web applications and websites that ordinary people could use. Interestingly, one of the first people who worked for me was Stuart Butterfield, who's the founder of Slack. Um, he and I worked together in, uh, 98, 99. And he was the, we built the design lab for us at a company called communicate.com, which I managed to exit from just before the whole dot-com explosion and managed to escape with enough money to only really need to start businesses of my own since then. And I just became really fascinated, increasingly fascinated with the psychology of online systems and how our attention um, often drives our intention, not the other way around. I mean, we imagine that we intend to do things and so we pay attention to them. But in actual fact, we don't, we have very little control over our attention. It, our attention is drawn to things and it actually molds our intention. It molds our behavior. And online systems are especially good, increasingly good at getting our attention, um, you know, and manipulating our behavior and our intentions below the threshold of consciousness. And I became really fascinated with this effect, you know, in the early 2000s and decided to build companies to try to harness that to do well and to do good things. And then around 2008, I started a serious game studio with a couple of uh, colleagues. That was my, I guess my, my fourth company. I skipped over some boring stuff eventually became a yoga when around 2011 focused specifically on how we can help patients and clinicians collaborate together more effectively and to help patients think of their healthcare as something that is really integrated in their life and not something that is just happening to them. You have one of the most fascinating stories I've ever heard. Honestly. If you're interested in structured information systems, I've got a whole bunch of patents around massively multi-user collaboration systems from the early 2000s, but I skipped over that. That's not healthcare later. We can talk about that one later, but how, how did you get so technical that I have, I'm getting my second degree in engineering now and like even listening to this is just giving me a headache. Like, oh my God, how did you do all this? Well, you know, that I think I said already a couple of times about the role that luck plays and I was just very, very lucky to be around some really, really smart people who are just very generous, you know, very generous with their time, very generous with, you know, their mentorship. I mean, Bruce Sharp, Dr. Sharp, um, you know, was an incredibly important influence in my career, you know, just go to around to meetings, Michael, <laughs> and just figure it out. You know, like you're smart, see what you can do, make a contribution and don't be afraid to ask questions. 
And, you know, all along the way, you know, whether it was engin the engineering team at Softquad or built a company um, in folding systems and I got advice from, you know, Stuart Butterfield and Paul Prescott, um, who's one of the people who worked on the original XML specification. They just were very generous, you know, to, because I'm a generalist, really. And like a lot of generalists, I have this very horizontal skill set. I'm very good at integrating things from a bunch of different fields. You know, I can think about user experience design. I know a little bit about engineering enough to be dangerous. I, I know how to structure legal contracts a little bit, you know, enough to be a businessman. So I know a little bit of a bunch of things and that's really, really helpful. But unlike a lot of generalists, I'm not very T-shaped. I know a lot of people who have a very general skill set, but it's built on top of some pillar of deep expertise, whether it's medicine or engineering or some other field like that. But I'm just about as pure a generalist as you can get. <laughs> you know, that I think has forced me to be disciplined in a particular way, which is, you know, just to remain humble about things. I, I am actually not an expert in anything at all. And so virtually everybody I speak to has a deeper expertise than me in some area. And so I'm very, I'm hungry and I'm curious and I try to be disciplined about, you know, listening uh, to people and asking questions and, and, you know, being humble, you know, and just, I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, I'm just taking risks and taking chances and, and iterating as I go and trying to always do better than the last thing I did. Play off that. And do you think being dash shaped as you're describing it inherently has an advantage over being T-shaped? Well, I think it's different. And in some ways it's an advantage, like any difference, you know, it's in some ways it's a, it's a, it's a weakness. You know, you, you wouldn't want me to be your chief technology officer, maybe, or, or your head of engineering, probably, or a chief medical officer. You wouldn't want me to take on those kinds of roles where you require a really deep background in some particular area. But I'm very good at integrating data from a, information from a bunch of different fields and synthesizing some new insight. Now, I've always been very good at thinking, you know, um, I think it was Arthur Schopenhauer's got one of my favorite quotes, right? It's, it's not to see what nobody else sees, but it is to think what no one has yet thought about what everybody sees. So, I mean, I really love that quote. I mean, there's just, there's so many things to see, <laughs> right? And, um, you know, you can go around looking for entirely new things that that's, that's one way to go about the world. And I think you can do really interesting things when you do that. But I really love the kind of entrepreneurialism that comes from sifting through the garbage heap. You know, there's a bunch of things that people just didn't really care enough about, didn't decided that it wasn't important. They threw it away. They, they just didn't utilize it and you can utilize it in a new way. There was a lot of, um, the early part of the web was just recognizing that this sort of what people were doing, wasting time. You say people were wasting time on the internet is not a waste. Actually, that's a valuable resource that could be harvested and all sorts of business models were built around harvesting that, you know, wasted attention, you know, that exhaust, that data exhaust, that, that attention exhaust. And in a similar way, you know, just about every field has that, you know, some underutilized resource that can be combined in some new way to make a new opportunity. That's fascinating. So, I mean, with this, I guess, generalist approach to how you think about things overall, why did that lead you to pursue a, a yoga with a focus on medicine? Because that's such a sub-specialized field that's very, very difficult to be a generalist. In. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the reason you just said it out loud, right? I mean, it, it's so full of specialists, right? Who you need to help those, right? So full of, where are the generalists? You know, who are the people that are integrating, yeah. you know, technology and medicine and, you know, experience design and behavioral economics and the siloing in medicine is very powerful. 
it's one of the, it's obviously one of the reasons why it's difficult to operate as a generalist in healthcare, right? Because it is so strongly siloed, often for very good reasons, but it does present opportunities. And, and one of those opportunities is just, I mean, this is, this is probably one of the ways in which I first encountered it. I just got super, super excited. You know, we were, we got approached by um, Diabetes Hands Foundation together with the Joslin Diabetes Center at Harvard and a pharma company called uh, Beringer Ingelheim. Wanted to do some, we had done a bunch of online social games that were oriented around, um, you know, helping people to you know, engage with difficult topics like environmental issues and various different things. And they approached us really early on in the life of the company when we were still a game studio and said, hey, maybe you could help us here. We've got you know, this diet and exercise program for people newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and we just can't get them to pay attention to it. They know that it will help them live longer. It might make the difference between, you know, an amputation or not. You know, we can say that all well, we just can't get anybody to actually do it. And maybe you could help us. And we thought, well, that's a really interesting problem. Let's go out and talk to people because that's what generals do, right? We go and we have conversations and we try to figure out what's what. So, you know, we talked to a bunch of you know, um, patients, we talked to a bunch of endocrinologists, diabetes educators, and we heard a bunch of interesting things. You'd speak to a clinician and you say, what is your goal for this patient in this newly diagnosed with type two? You say, well, we got to get their hemoglobin A1C down below 7.2 or whatever their goal is, right? So they say it like that. And then you go and you ask the patient, you know, like, what is your goal? What are you trying to do? And they say, well, I want to travel after I retire and not go into a diabetic coma in a foreign country. That's my goal. Well, it turns out that's literally the same goal. It is just stated in a different way. And they just couldn't talk to each other across this divide. If you come to them and say, well, look, this, this program of diet and exercise will get your hemoglobin A1C down. Patients are like, well, that's what my doctor wants. Okay. Maybe, maybe that's for some people, that's powerful enough motivation. But if you say, look, this will help you travel when you retire and not be afraid. Well, that's something people can really understand. And sometimes it's just about translating between the languages. And that was sort of one of the early insights that got us really, really excited about working in this space. Um, the other one was uh, a little, an, an effect we noticed in that early game, which was that you'd think some of the early social games were oriented around people sort of making pledges, right? I'm, I'm going to, you know, you, you go onto the internet and you know, onto the web, you say, I'm, I'm going to do this this week. These are my goals. And you tell people about it. And you, pe people who project their goals onto the internet, it was thought this was a real a powerful effect to keep you accountable. What we noticed actually was kind of the opposite effect almost, which was that it wasn't people who posted the most. But the people who received the most messages from other people were the ones whose behavior was most likely to change. So it's actually incoming messages from our social network that influence our behavior. You're speaking in your own voice. You've heard your own voice. You know what you were saying. You've heard that before. But when you, when someone speaks to you from outside, because we're social animals, we naturally start to orient ourselves to the in external incoming messages. It seems that that's what, that's our that how we theorized the, that was having the effect, but it was a clear effect. I mean, people were people who received more messages from other people. So we designed the, we designed our social games to maximize the number of positive incoming messages from the social network to try to influence people's behavior. And that was one of our really early projects. And, and we've just sort of continued along that avenue ever since. That's fascinating because behavioral change is one of the most difficult things to, to do in medicine and I think a, a huge majority, um, I, I mean, of, of, in my opinion, 
funding should be spent on preventing disease, which is, you know, done by a big exchange rather than treating it after it actually occurs. <laughs> but we've talked around what Ayogo has done in the past, as well as a little bit about what it aims to behavioral change in healthcare. Mm. What are some specific things or what are the mission goals of Ayogo in the current age, in its current state? Yeah, well, in the, just in the last few years in particular, we've been very focused on um, dynamic tailoring of interventions, so dynamically adaptive interventions. So each person lives inside a unique psychosocial decision-making context. Different things influence me as influence you, and I've had different childhood than you have maybe, or, you know, different sorts of things, different kinds of social networks. Obviously, we have different demographics and, and different effects. So if you want to influence somebody, the more you know about them, the more that you can influence them. And so we are trying to build a system that uses psychosocial profiling. So there are some validated instruments that we can apply here that are actually quite useful, like perceived self-efficacy, very useful construct, um, you know, depression, um, anxiety, you know, there's validated instruments that we can apply there to understand what is influencing a person's emotional states and decision-making states, but also things like value surveys, you know, the things that you value are different from the things that I value. You know, maybe you're very, very, you know, faith oriented and you care deeply about your church or, you know, maybe there's, you know, you, um, your family oriented or you want to travel or you're deeply dedicated to your pets. You know, these kinds of things can really influence our behavior or, or certainly give us a language that we can use to speak to the person about what's important in a language that they will recognize. So gathering this data to build a profile of a person and then to use those data to dynamically architect a user interface for them. We like to say we construct a individualized choice architecture. So a next best action for each or a set of next best actions to choose from for each person that's unique to them based on their goals, their values, but also other things like, you know, how much disease state knowledge they have, how comfortable are they with technical language, how well connected are they socially. And we can um, provide them with interventions that are most likely to be, you know, personal, relevant, and timely, that person to change their behavior. And we've been, we've been focusing this work mostly in around renal, um, uh, renal diseases and that sort of cluster of comorbidities that go around chronic kidney disease, diabetes, and various other things, but mostly focused on the later stages of that condition when people are trends, um, um, they're uh, sort of moving from one stage to another, moving on to dialysis typically. What's obvious? roundabout from here is uh the ethical implications of Ayoga's work yeah uh, how I really consider glad, that yeah i'm really glad you brought that up because i mean i, I just think this is really the fundamental issue of our time almost you know it was thought for a long time that the real danger of artificial intelligence was super smart ai right ai that was smarter than the smartest of us and you know we would get out of our control and, and do all these things well it turns out the real danger is stupid ai you know, there's a lot of systems that get built whose job it is to manipulate our behavior below the threshold of consciousness, and it's given really, really, really stupid goals. It turns out that human beings are actually very easy to manipulate. As long as your goals for that manipulation are quite narrow, if all you want is to make me more emotionally activated in order to make me more predictable, it's actually a very simple algorithm to do that. And the AI that Twitter and Facebook and Google apply there is really stupid. It's not interested in better social outcomes. It's not interested in better health. It's not interested in any of those things. It's just interested in making us a more predictable clicker. 
so that they can make more money for their advertising. And this is, I think, you know, the, one of the biggest dangers to our society. We thought we were really sophisticated and difficult to manipulate. And it turns out we're really not. If all you want is just to get people to be predictable, you can activate people emotionally. More complex behaviors are much harder to get, obviously, but the simple behavior of just getting angry and yelling at the next person or clicking on a, angry, clicking on a, another uh, video in the list, that's actually pretty easy behavior to get. And if you figured out a way to monetize that, well, that's, that is a business model that just will just pour money into your pocket, but actually will destroy society. And most of that, most of that effect, you know, the, the sort of the architecture, the mechanisms of, of that effect are below the threshold of consciousness. And I think it is really unethical to be manipulating people with techniques that operate below the threshold of consciousness without telling them what you are doing and why. So anyone who uses one of the yoga systems is, is first given control over the objectives saying, you tell us what your goals are, you know, work together with your clinician in a shared decision-making kind of model to set the goals for yourself. And then we tell you, yes, what we are going to do is we're going to provide you with a set of choices that we built for you based on how we understand you to try to guide you towards the goals that you've told us you want. And we think that's an ethical approach to behavior change, behavior changing systems. I mean, there's a bit more to it than that, but that's a, an, a really important part of it. The Yogo signed the digital health um, uh, equity pledge, and we're interested in not just informed consent, but also systems that are alive to the diversity of human beings and human beings' goals and and ways of being in the world to make sure that you know the systems that we build are you know humanistic first, and um, you know there there's things that we could accomplish by manipulating people. Um, and maybe even some of those might even be thought of as being socially good goals, but we think you lose your soul when you do that. And it's very important to, you know, to get people's informed consent and be transparent about what you're doing. I'm a bit curious then from a psychology perspective, how is it that you can manipulate the audience if they know they're being manipulated? Well, I mean, you're manipulating me right now, right? I mean, you, you talked me to coming onto this podcast. And, you know, you, you did it by promising me some very interesting questions and an interesting conversation. And you're both very charming, charming young men, you know, and, and so here I am, <laughs> you know, you've influenced, you've influenced me and, and that's good. That's what I wanted. I want interesting conversations. You said, Hey, Michael, would you like to have a really interesting conversation about something that matters to you? That's important. And I said, yeah, hell yeah, I'll take that 11 times out of 10. That was a conversation, a conversation between you and I as equals you know, where we each had access to equivalent information and uh, you didn't try to do anything, you know, underhanded to make me behave the way that you wanted. That's the kind of relationship that we want to have with all the end users of our systems, whether they're patients or clinicians. I, I guess in terms of, uh, you know, you, you've answered the question about the ethics of, you know, behavioral change overall, yeah. but how do you deal with the ramifications or the interactions between healthcare's very tight policies around data gathering mm. and what you do, because without, you know, without ongoing gathering of data, you can't really change your algorithm to improve it and make sure that it better fits the patient hand. Um, but at the same time, trying to get data out of healthcare systems or healthcare practices is, is like pulling teeth, rightly so. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe even harder than pulling teeth, let's hope, you know, for certain kinds of data. Um, yeah, well, you know, I mean, we're just, we're just a company operating in the world, you know, we're just a, 
the, a cork bobbing on the waves of the, of this big ocean, you know, the, there are things that are best done by industry, you know, innovating and building things and being driven by, you know, the profit motive when we're a for-profit company, you know, profit motive drives a lot of be human behavior. It drives our behavior and creates incentives for us. Mm -hmm. And there are things that should definitely not be left to industry. And, um, because the profit motive has no place there, it's a, it's the, it's the space of governments and foundations and nonprofits. And one of those things is regulatory regimes. I think that industry cannot be trusted to self-regulate here. There's too much money, too much money. And it's just going to drive people's behavior. And it already has driven people's behavior in all kinds of awful ways. So we're big fans of, I mean, even though it constrains our business and makes our life harder, and in so many ways, it would just be so easy if we could just do unethical things, right? But, you know, GDPR has been really good. HIPAA is a great start. Pepita here in Canada. I mean, there's, these regulatory frameworks are important. And I think it's important that they are, that we, you know, that we push as cit individual citizens, not just as business people, that, you know, and, and as clinicians and engineers and, you know, and, and all the people, you know, as society, that we push our governments to ensure that we have regulatory regimes that are well informed by the current state of technology, but also the values of our society. And, you know, and Ayogo just, you know, our job is to live within that. And where, where we see the regulations fall short, you know, we can set an example, we can work together with other companies and, and, you know, you know, try to be an exemplar. Um, but we don't see it as our job to make other people do things any particular way. I mean, we're just trying to live the best way that we know how and then feel good about ourselves and go to bed at night. And if the regulations are ahead of us, then that's great. We've got a target to go to. And if the regulations are behind us, well, that's unfortunate, but that doesn't, that doesn't keep us from the um, obligation that we feel, I feel, and everybody in a yoga feels, I know, to live our values. That's fascinating that you mentioned that because uh, in like offline, we talked about how a lot of uh, Ayoko's work is non-shredding. Mm -hmm. And for those listeners who don't know what shred is, it's basically a tax credit that incentivizes, uh, if I'm not incorrect, Michael, uh, innovation R&D, essentially. Yeah. Um, but uh, it seems like behavioral change uh, doesn't seem to fall within the, the, the purview of that, um, you know, of that field. Yeah. Why do you think that is? And do you think this will impede the growth of the digital health sector, which I guess ultimately often will aim to incentivize behavioral change to increase adherence to certain therapies? Yes, but I think it does clearly. I mean, this is obviously an example where the, it, it's interesting that it's, it's actually not in the statute, right? It's not in the legislation a regulatory framework of SRNED, scientific research and experimental development, SRNED tax credits. It's actually a policy of the CRA. And I think that policy has been in place for a long time and it actually is not serving us very well now. And the policy is that social sciences are not surrendable. So any innovation or scientific research you do in social sciences and, you know, from our point of view, psycho human psychology and behavior change is kind of the key piece there for us is not surrendable at all. And despite the fact we're doing, we think really, you know, real important experimental development. We're not a, we're not a scientific research organization. We think there is important scientific research to be done here, but from an experimental development point of view, this is where we spend all day, every day, um, is doing experimental development in this area. And none of it is threadable. That has cost us, you know, several million dollars over the last few years and, you know, relative to companies in other in other areas and it is driving innovation away from our space and into other spaces on the one hand 
if you if you want to you know remain an independent company and on the other hand it's driving us to take us venture capital and lose control of our companies earlier because we have to raise more money i think it is not a healthy dynamic and i think that you know cre needs to do something about it but you know again we're just a small company and there's only so much that we can do i've done everything i can to raise this issue with every every politician every legislator every regulator i speak to i mentioned it at some point sort of getting a reputation as being the thread complainer but um sure guy but but i do think it's important and it's just an example you know just to your earlier point it's just an example of how we can let the regulations fall behind the current state of the art and we need to always be working to make sure that we're keeping things up to date to push back against it then michael why do you think these regulations were in place to begin with well, yeah, I mean, I think it's for good reasons. I, you know, I, I expect that the reason that it was done in the first place was to try to avoid things like, you know, advertising systems and stuff like that, you know, marketing programs um, being shreddable. I, I don't doubt that there were very well-meaning people who put these policies in place for very good reasons. It just, at this point, it is completely impenetrable. <laughs> you know, the CRA is impenetrable at the best of times. And somewhere inside CRA, there's some council of people who's making decisions and I have no way of speaking to them. I don't know if they've ever heard this message from me. And, and there's no way to, there appears to be no good way to influence it, except to go in through the political side, which seems like a pretty blunt instrument. If you're a company that's trying to, you know, work in six, 12, 18 month innovation cycles. So, you know, again, there's only so much a company our size can do, but, but I think, um, you know, I, I hope here in Canada, Generally, we can get better at evolving our policies more quickly than, um, you know, it's an opportunity for Canada, frankly, to be a leader in thinking about how our legislation and our regulatory frameworks better reflect our values and goals as a society. And hopefully we can avoid some of the scenes that we've seen south of the border with senators asking just absurdly stupid questions of religious executives. I mean, we, you know, I'm not a technocrat. I don't think we should just turn our legislation over to <laughs> to researchers and, and academics. But I but I do think that there's a need here for politicians to and regulators to listen to experts in the field. To move away from politics for a second, let's think about for the company. What are you guys working on? We are working hard to transform the way that patients transition from um, you know late stage kidney disease to renal failure. There's a lot that happens in that time that's very difficult and challenging. Uh, and, and, and we really believe we can make a real difference in people's lives. People that are struggling, you know, something like 60% of all patients with stage four kidney disease have a crash or unplanned start on dialysis. That is a really awful, horrifying statistic, and we really should do something about it. <laughs> and I think, you know, there's lots of people who can play a part in that, but a yoga that this is, we feel this is really at the heart of our expertise. It is helping people make these transitions to be ready for them, to think them through carefully, to engage with their clinicians, share decision-making processes and establish a common language for talking about what clinical, how healthcare goals, clinical goals, your care plan can match up together with your life plan. And beyond renal care, we're thinking about, you know, other therapeutic areas that we can travel to next. Um, there's a lot of really interesting use cases, we think, and in muscle sclerosis and, and, and conditions like that. So, you know, we're, we're, we're doing our early stage research there to, to think about our next generation of product. That's certainly fascinating. And I mean, some of the speaks from the healthcare side, I'm, I'm really wondering, you know, what can healthcare providers or people who are advocates for the adoption 
and use of ancillary like behavioral modification technologies or digital uh, health technologies do to help advance the adoption of tools which can improve patient outcomes despite pushback from within. Mm-hmm. Well, I hate to push more responsibility onto physicians, right? Because there's, you know, there's so much to be done there, you know, and you're expected to be an expert in so many things all the time, you know, just in the last 15, 20 years, you know, a whole new era of technology was, you know, kind of foisted on, on you know, some of, some of that obviously has been to very, very good effect and, and made it practice easier and better in a lot of ways. And some of it has not, some of it has really just been, you know, made things more difficult, you know, more systems you have to interact with, more user interfaces, you have to be a, an expert in technology in a way that you didn't have to maybe 20 years ago. But I do think that there's a, there's a need here for a, kind of the next generation of uh, physicians and not just doctors, but also nurses and, and allied care professionals to recognize that we live in a technological environment. Everything that we're doing is connected online. Everything's network connected. Everyone's got a supercomputer in their pocket now. And this is, um, you know, this is the world that we live in and medical practice and, you know, nursing care and, you know, just like technology development, you know, 20 years before has to adapt and, and we need to do th- different things now and think differently about, about our role here. Um, you know, I think industry has got an important responsibility here to not just toss half big crap, frankly, over the wall to physicians and say, you guys figure it out. That, that is totally the wrong way to do it. You know, we need, you know, good industry validation, regulatory frameworks. There's a whole bunch of stuff we need to do to make sure that the digital therapeutics and the digital solutions that we're delivering into the healthcare system are properly validated and are designed well. It's not just about uh, clinical validation, but also about user acceptance testing and experience design validation. If we can do those things well, then we can put good tools in the hands of, of the healthcare professionals who are ultimately the ones that are responsible for the care of the patients, right? You have to put good t- tools in their hand. And with those tools, I think there's a real role and a key role for the clinicians to play here to guide their patients towards a better, healthier relationship with their care and and the data that their care is generating, right? Most healthcare is data-driven in, in a way that patients don't see because it's kind of hidden inside the EMR or it's, you know, it's off in the cloud somewhere. But, you know, we need to make sure that patients understand that, you know, it's not just about the explicit choices you're making and the things that you do that there's this sort of digital footprint, fingerprint that you have everywhere. And it's actually an important part of your healthcare. You need to understand what it is and how it works and, and, and how to properly utilize it to get to your health goals as a patient. So on the flip side of that, I mean, you, you just talked about patients and health providers, but what can technical experts like self or those who are, you know, more T-shaped than mm. said, uh, do to help advance the field of digital therapeutics and the adoption of these tools. Yeah. Well, okay. I don't, I don't want to get political right away with your question, but I, but I do think that there's, there's, there's something important to say about it, right? Which is that our, we, we need to change the way that we think about success from an, uh, an industry point of view. It's not just about making money. I mean, there are, there are plenty of things that make money that are actually terrible. You know, I mean, I, I was just having this conversation with somebody about homeopathy. I mean, if the only measure of your success is, does it make money? then I guess homeopathy is a huge success, but we know that it's complete garbage. And in fact, for the most part, gets in the way of people doing the things that they actually really need to do to be healthy, right? It's actually, it's actually bad for many people who avoid 
engaging with real therapies in favor of the pseudoscience. So it's important, you know, from an engineering and a technical and business point of view that we are not just thinking like, does the, does this thing work the way I designed it? Or does this thing make money? But also does this increase human flourishing? That's actually the real measure of our success. And, you know, we need to bring that lens to everything that we're doing, you know, from engineering to experience design, you know, to business model creation. And, and, um, and I, and I think that it's especially incumbent on the, the part of the, the, the people in this picture, the stakeholders that are coming from the business and technology side are, are you know, we, we're not used to, we, none of us have taken a Hippocratic oath. It's something that's very like in the healthcare side, my wife's a nurse and I, I know a lot of people who are, uh, who are healthcare professionals. It's just second nature to them. Yeah, of course my job is human flourishing. That's what I do. Right. And, but that's actually, that's something that we have to adopt more. We have to be more explicit about it on, on the, on the technical and business side uh, of, of this sort of stakeholder table so that we can properly engage in the conversation in, in the right way. That was a beautiful answer. I really enjoyed that. To close off, I'd like to just ask you a very simple question. What what would, what advice would you give your 15, 16 year old self since you've had such a, a different journey? Wow. Um, when you meet that beautiful young woman in Prince George, definitely accept her offer wearing her, her sweater in front of the campfire, even though it's too small for you. You'll look silly, but you'll be, you'll thank me later. That's the that's first piece of advice. I would all, I would say, you know, stay curious, you know, that every success you're going to have in your life is built from some combination of curiosity and love and diligence. When you work hard and you're curious and you have love in your heart, everything you do is good. So you know, just focus on those things and everything's going to work out for you. Last thing, are there any pluggables that you'd like to plug? Any social media profiles, LinkedIn, et cetera? Well, sure. So for those people out there whose backgrounds are you know, healthcare or technology and you're interested in, in industry, we are, we're pretty sort of inside out company and we publish, um, a lot of our sort of internal culture stuff gets published onto Instagram and Facebook. That's one good way to find our company there and see what it's like to be us. And if you're interested in the work that we're doing from a sort of customer facing point of view, you can find us on LinkedIn companies called Ayogo, A-Y-O-G-O and ayogo.com. And of course, Anyone out there should feel free to reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, uh, Michael Ferguson, uh, two S's in Ferguson. And I just love to hear from new people and, and love to hear what people are working on. That's interesting. Thank you for listening to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, please download and rate our episodes on whatever platform you listen on. Also, if you have any feedback on what you just heard, we'd love to hear it wherever you listen to or on our website, howitsmed.com. That way we can create better content that suits you. Till next time, bye-bye.